listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, James. That's James Van Dyke, and his presence is part of my strategy and plan, modeling a tight Bethel Bible t-shirt. Always put up the best-looking guy you can find in front of you. That way you will have nothing but pity for me and my pudgy soul as I'm up here. You'll be rooting for me. That's my prayer. James and his lovely wife, Anna, have a couple kids, one of which is Laurel. And if you don't know Laurel, <laughs> you soon will. She pretty much runs the campus. She's one of our children, and in our first service, we got to do something really, really fun, really, really cool. We invited all of our children up on this platform, and there's a reason for that, and the reason for that is this. Whitney Houston was wrong. It's not often that I get to quote Whitney Houston, but I'm going to do that in this service. She was wrong about a couple things. First of all, she said, I want to dance with somebody, and I do not want to dance with anybody. So she was wrong about that. Number two, she said, I believe the children are our future. Well, she was wrong about that too. The children are not our future. The children are our now. We don't believe that the children are the future of the church and the future church. They are the church now. And it is our God-given responsibility and privilege to love them, lead them, guide them, and guard them into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ to model that in our homes, and to be effective in discipleship. You see, that's part of the vision of our church. Now, all summer long, we've been talking about this idea for our church is the pursuit of wisdom. How do we as a people, as a church, specifically as a campus, how do we pursue and then possess wisdom? Wisdom, seeing the world through God's eyes thinking God's thoughts after him, being equipped to deal with the majority of life that is not explicitly covered in the pages of Scripture. We just begin to think God-like thoughts as a people. Just imagine all these people walking around Tyler, Texas, that were thinking God's thoughts after him, and that was dictating the words that they spoke, the actions that they take. That's what we've been after. And so in the month of June, we walked through some of the Proverbs, we talked about the wisdom of our work, of our words, and of our worship. In the month of July, we walked through some of the Psalms talking about it is right to praise and give God thanks for all of his goodness and his glory and his grace. And in the month of August, this is sort of a normative thing that we do at Bethel, is we talk about the vision of the church. So if you're visiting this morning, my name is Eric Barton, and I get to pass for the downtown campus, and it's my privilege every August to say, hey, listen, this is sort of who we are. This is what we do. And I know that that word vision can mean sort of everything, and it can mean sort of nothing. Vision, it sounds sometimes like the yada yada that every church talks about. And it's just another church with a so-so website and a glossy brochure that says, hey, this is what we're all about. But really, this is what we're all about. Let me put it another way. Vision for us is simply the thing that we're doing no matter what we're doing. You get that? No matter what we're doing, whether it's in children's ministry or women's Bible study or life groups or worship or community service engagements, whatever it is, our vision is what we're doing no matter what we're doing. So a couple weeks ago, we started a study in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, and we learned all about growing communities, that God's people are called to gather together in God's spirit 
around God's word with a unanimity of purpose and focus and emphasis. And we envision by God's grace that he is equipping us, he has called us, he has unleashed us to be a force in this community to grow community. We mean in the midst of this downtown context. We, we are Bethel Bible Church, one church existing in three locations. I just want to be very clear about that for those of you who don't know this. We're not three separate churches that share a logo. We are one church existing in three locations, and each location has what we call an indigenous expression. You're not going to find Matt McGill anyplace else in town, I guarantee, all right? This is part of our unique indigenous expression in worship, in aesthetic, in all that we do. But there are some majors that we don't change on, both at our South Campus, which is more suburban, and our White House Campus, which is more rural. We gather together around God's Word. We feel like God is calling us to grow the community in which we minister, but not just the community on the whole, also our family groups, these little outposts of the embassy that is the church for the kingdom. Also, specific little gatherings and groups, women's Bible study groups, men's Bible study groups, life groups, accountability groups, whatever it might be, that we are called to grow community. It is life on life, never in isolation. It's never okay for a Christian, for a believer in Christ Jesus to say, well, it's just me and Jesus. We're just riding. He's my co-pilot or my boss is a Jewish carpenter, any of that nonsense. No, 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 no. We are always in community. That was a couple weeks ago. Last week, we opened up 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we learned about building leaders. So as a church, we want to be characterized by growing communities and building leaders. And we installed a new elder and four new deacons at this campus. The other two campuses installed new elders and deacons as well. We believe that God has called every believer to wield influence. And the way we wield influence, the way God transforms people's lives, is through his word. So we want to be very intentional about raising up people who will wield God's word because that transforms people's lives. So as a church, we want to be all about growing communities, building leaders, and then finally living generously. We want to be known in the community as that church whose people give their lives away. We don't want to be known as, oh, that Bible church, yeah, they use some Greek words in their sermons every now and then, or, oh, they have some really cool music. No, we want to be known as the church that grows communities, builds leaders, and lives generously, that our people are known in this area as those who give their lives away. This is our vision. We want to do these three things no matter what we're doing. And vision's really an important thing, and it became, well, I can't say crystal clear to me this week, but it did become increasingly important. This week, I finally yielded to the ravages of time, and I got bifocals. And I revile them more than the devil. If you happen to work at that institution that prescribed these bifocals to me, a pox on you and your family. That's all I'm going to say. I hate them. They said you're going to get used to them, and, and I'm not. It's like looking through one of those glass block shower things. I have no idea who any of you are. I'm just delighted that you're here. And I realize how dangerous it can be to go through life with no vision. I tried to go downstairs just a little bit ago, and it was like a slip and slide. I had no idea. I had both handrails, and I, I've, so just bear with me. If and when I faceplant off the stage, just point and chuckle. I'll get up, and we'll keep going, all right? But vision is crucially important to know who we are and where we're going. So this morning, I want to continue. We've talked about growing communities and building leaders. This morning, I'm going to invite you to turn in 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to talk about living generously. 
1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And I thought about it this week, and it occurred to me that more than any other passage in either testament, old or new, I think I have taught or preached 1 Peter 4 more than any other passage. And I can't help it. I think for me it's just a central wheelhouse favorite text. It is so jam-packed with who we are to be as a people, as a pastor. It's just one of my go-to passages. I can't help it. It's so rich. So 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. So what does God's word have for us this morning? Why are we here? The purpose of preaching, the purpose of coming to church is that we will hear God speak and our perspective will be transformed, will be nudged a little bit closer, the needle will move, that our thinking will be more like God's. So what is God telling us about how to live generously in this passage? Well, first, let me give some very quick context and some setting. This is the Apostle Peter writing somewhere in the middle of the 60s A.D. These churches in, in what is today modern Turkey were planted in the, in the mid-50s A.D. by the Apostle Paul. So these people have been believers for about 10 years. They are all in, but they're beginning to get discouraged they're beginning to be persecuted. They're beginning to suffer. They're in a socioeconomic structure that's really not all that different from ours. They're in a culture that is not that different from ours. It is largely hedonistic. It is idolatrous. And really, the denarii, or the dollar in our case, sort of rules the day. And they've been at it for about 10 years, and they have lost, well, they've lost their church planter. The Apostle Paul has been killed in Rome. So what's needed is that someone who knows Jesus to, to come back onto the scene and to write to encourage these churches that are now beginning to be fledgling churches. So the Apostle Peter walks back onto the scene. He's been largely absent, operating in hiddenness and obscurity for about 30 years since the close of uh, Pentecost and a couple of other things he does in the book of Acts. Peter's been largely traveling back and forth between Syrian Antioch and Rome and back and forth. But now he writes this letter to encourage them. These people are the elect exiles. They are God's people chosen by him for a purpose. And they're not how and where they thought they should be. Because sometimes the script we write for our lives is not the script that God has written for our lives. And this is the context in which these people that Peter is writing to find themselves. And Peter says this in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Egiken. It is near. It is, it's right there. Now does Peter mean that it's going to happen specifically in the mid-60s A.D. here in about three or four days. No, I don't think that's what Peter means. Peter has heard Jesus in his earthly ministry say, nobody knows the hour. You will hear about wars and rumors of wars. There will be this and that and this and that. And that's not the end. It's just some of the beginning 
warning signs that we're in the final age. So I don't think that Peter's now coming on the scene saying, well, look, I know that Jesus said we don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm telling you it's going to happen in three days. I don't think that's what Peter's saying. I think it's much more broad than that. What Peter is saying is we are alive during the final age before the final age. This is it. There will not be another administration of God's household until Jesus himself comes back and sets up his bodily, physical reign in Jerusalem, ruling as the king of the earth. So there's been a lot of different epics and ages and eras throughout our Bible. There was the the system of, of governance that God had in the Garden of Eden. Then after the Garden, there was a different system. Then after that, there was the the pre-flood area, and there's how God managed his household. Then after that, there was the time before the Tower of Babel, and things were a certain way. Then after that, we get Abraham, and then Moses comes, and there's the time of the law. After the time of the law, Jesus comes. The Spirit of God comes. No longer are we beholden to the written code of conduct, the law. We have the Spirit of God written in our hearts and dwelling within us. It's a different age. And the next age will not be a new set of rules or a new system of governance that God imposes on his people. No, it'll be Jesus himself coming back. It is at hand. It is near. There is nothing else that has to occur on the prophetic calendar before Jesus comes back. Now, this is huge because what Peter is doing is he is setting for us two fixed points on the horizon, one that happened in the past. Chapter 4, verse 1, talks about the cross of Christ, that God stepped out of glory in the person of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, that he lived a perfect, flawless, sinless, holy, righteous life. All three and a half-ish decades of his life, he never existed outside the righteousness and holiness of God. And that he fulfilled the demands of the law, that is perfection. And going to the cross and dying, he paid the wages of sin, which is death. What does sin deserve? What does it earn? What does it merit? What does it warrant? Death. And Jesus says, give me the check. I'll pay this one in full for all those that will receive. That fixed point in history is the cross of Christ. We just sang about it. And it does not move. And there is another fixed point that is as yet to come, and that is the return of Christ in glory. Those two fixed points change everything. The cross of Christ, it is finished, and he is coming again. And so what Peter is doing is equipping us to live in the meantime. And he's saying that that coming of Christ is imminent. It can come like that. Therefore, we are to be something. Now, some of us here are therefore, and we take out our pens, and we dab our tongues, which I don't know why you do that. That's weird. But you get ready to make a little list of what to do. You'll be disappointed. He's not going to give us a to-do list. He's going to give us a couple to-be's. It says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, it is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be a certain way. And this has to do with reigning in our thinking. Ah, really? That's boring. I'd rather have just a checklist of stuff that I can do that will accomplish something. Nope. It is about reigning in our mindset. We say this all the time down here. I want to say it again. The only thing God gives me any control over in the cosmos is my attitude. I can complain about the heat and the humidity. Oh, and I do vociferously and regularly. It doesn't change a thing. It still feels like being inside somebody's mouth when I walk outside. It's just hot and sticky. I know. You'll see in just a minute here. I know. I can complain about the traffic on Broadway and all the purple minivans that are in the way. I know. Doesn't change a thing. In fact, I really can't even control how my sons 
do in school. I can't control how any of you do in your marriages. The only thing that I really have any control over whatsoever is my attitude, and it matters immensely. You see, our thinking matters to God. Our thoughts have spiritual mass. Peter's not alone in saying this. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4.8. He says, whatever is pure and noble and good and decent and holy and righteous and awesome, think on these things. Direct your mind to them. Why, why does Paul say that we should do that? Because nothing drifts to good. I don't know about you, but left on idle, my mind does not drift to the holiness of God and his throne room. It drifts to jalapeno cheddar Cheetos. I can't help myself. That's just where it goes. Paul says, no, 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 rein in your thinking. Direct your thoughts with vigilance and intentionality and volitionality. Be self-controlled. All through chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter, Peter has warned us, do not yield or succumb to sensuality because that dims your mind's capacity to think rightly about God, which is God's desire for all of us. Don't be dimmed by sensuality. Do not engage in anything that is an escape from your reality. Be sober-minded. Be aware of what's happening. And then this is for the sake of your prayers. I think perhaps a little better translation in verse 7 is, which directs your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded, which produces prayer in you. In other words, the more I spend thinking on God and his holiness and what Christ accomplished in his life and the coming of the Spirit and his people and his word, the more I just think about that, the more it leads me to prayer. And I think, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? I've given you every reason in spades. And yet you are good. And yet you are gracious. Why have you not forsaken me? And I pray. And I pray. But that starts with my clear-mindedness, with my sober-mindedness. The end of all things is at hand. Listen, we are living in the age which is populating the next age. So much is at stake. We are to be diligent and vigilant to direct us to prayer. Above all, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly. It's like Peter says, look, I, 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 I can't tell you everything I want to tell you. Parchment's expensive and I got one pen. But, but here's the thing. Keep loving each other. Don't you remember when this whole thing started? You were a bunch of ragtag natural enemies. But the cross of Christ redeemed you to be brothers and sisters, children of God Most High, and you loved each other. Keep doing that. Has there ever been a time when you loved the other people in this room that you actually wanted their good above yours? That's what it means to love somebody, is to live my life for you. That's what love is. My life for you. Not walk into a room and think, okay, all of your lives for me. What can I get out of you? What can I get from you people? No, that's, that's a different thing altogether. Peter says, keep loving one another selflessly, thinking about wanting the other's good, seeing a face and thinking, I, I want her to have a better day than me. How can I make that happen? I want him to have a better day than he's expecting. How can I be a part of that? And to have head on a swivel looking for that. Wanting the other's good. Having a well-reasoned concern for somebody else. Keep loving one another earnestly. Or maybe your Bible says fervently. The, the word has the idea of an athletic competition where the guy is stretching for the finish line with all that he's got, keeping his eyes on the tape and going at it as hard as he can. That's how we are to love one another. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. 
The time is short. So much is at stake. Keep loving one another. Jesus said himself, they out there will know that we are disciples of his by how we love one another. And greater man has no love than he lays down his life for a friend. John 15. Keep loving each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is not saying that my loving you and you loving me obliterates, wipes out, or atones, or pays for my sin. Of course not. Only the finished cross of Christ does that. But what he is saying is that our loving one another nips it in the bud, obliterates all of the molehills that have a tendency to turn into mountains in church. It covers a multitude of just error and depravity and fallenness. We just love each other. That stuff doesn't matter as much. We major on the majors and never on the minors. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this is interesting. It's not really an imperative. And I want to say this again and again and again. All throughout Peter and Paul and every other writer of the New Testament, the imperative always follows the indicative. Let me explain. The indicative is always a statement that says, this is who God is, this is what he has done. And then and only then will you ever find an imperative directing you to do something. Always. It's never do a bunch of stuff and then God will pay attention to you and bless you. It doesn't work that way. That's another religion entirely. In fact, it's every other religion entirely. This is God is this way. He has done this and therefore now you are free to go and to do this. Because of the cross of verse 1, show hospitality, but it's really an adjective. Be hospitable. Philoxenoi. And it means love like a comrade, like a friend, strangers. Or perhaps those who are strange to you. In other words, people who don't necessarily live where you live or drive what you drive or eat that quinoa thing that you eat and are so proud of and put on Instagram, I'm preaching. Or maybe they didn't even vote like you vote. But we are still to love them, to have camaraderie, friendship with them. And we are to do so, my favorite word in the New Testament right now, do so, show hospitality, be hospitable to people who are not necessarily like you or that you might otherwise not have anything to do with without grumbling. The Greek word is gongosmos, without gongosmosing. It's onomatopoeia, gongosmos, 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 gongosmos. Nothing rips a church to shreds like gongosmos. It is the most erosive force in the church. Gongus Moss, Gongus Moss. Can you believe what she's wearing? Oh my gosh. Can you believe the elders did that? I can't believe that. Can you believe the deacons have it? Gongus Moss, Gongus Moss, Gongus Moss, Gongus Moss. And it absolutely erodes the foundations of any church. Show love. Show hospitality. Be hospitable without griping about it. <laughs> That's asking a lot for me because I gripe about everything. It's true. Peter says the church is to be characterized as those who live generously, who show hospitality, who are hospitable without grumbling about it. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, as each, hekastos, every single person who is a believer, every single person, if you are a Christian, whether you feel like it or not, whether you feel like it or not, has received a gift, use it to make a big name for yourself, to be big and important in the church and to get a lot of attention and notoriety. Uh, that's a terrible translation. If your Bible says that, you should highlight that out with a black sharpie. It doesn't say that. What it says is use it to serve one another. The word serve there is diakonos. Dia, through, the dust. We kick up dust as we serve one another. 
We're looking to love one another, and we kick up the dust as we serve one another. Each of us has been given a gift. Now, a lot has been written about this. A lot of traditions and denominations take this to mean different things. There are some traditions that say that the gifts are special, maybe even supernatural, ecstatic things, like speaking in tongues or uh, healing gifts or throwing your, your cane down and it becomes a snake or whatever. I don't know. If you want to argue that point, great, let's have coffee. You buy, you say when. I don't think that's ever what, in context, Paul is talking about in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians or here what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 4. These gifts are generally talents or skills that you come into this world with, that God transforms and amplifies and uses to serve somebody else. Let me say that again. I believe that the gifts are talents or skills that you created in the image of God, then redeemed by the Son of God, those things are transformed and that the Spirit of God uses to bless and bolster somebody else. That's a gift. Well, how do I know what my gift is? Well, you can go online and take some awesome click, click, click assessment or you can not waste your time and just ask somebody close to you, hey, what do I love? What am I good at? What do I like to do? What are my skills and my talents? What are the things that you see me be good at? Those are your talents or your skills that God transforms to use to bless somebody else. And to the extent that we take these talents or these gifts and we hoard them for ourselves, not to bless anybody else, then it's like putting our light under a bowl. And the world in which God has placed us is lacking that light. So Peter says, head on a swivel. You have been given, if you are a believer, something in you created as the image of God has now been transformed by the Spirit of God to be used to bless the people of God. Do you see? Every single one of us have been given this. Each has been given, has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Good stewards, this word economia, it's where we get our word economy. It, it, we are to, to be the, the servants of God's household because it's all his. He has the cattle on a thousand hills and every car in your garage and yes, even all of your beanie babies. They're his. You own nothing. You're merely a steward. You're a manager of everything that God owns. And this passage, 1 Peter 4.10, is a central, central passage for who and what the church is. The church in this age is the dispenser of God's grace. It's not creation. It is the church. You want more grace in your life? you got to go to church. Now, I don't mean you go to church and you earn grace. I mean, that's where grace is dispensed. Every person you see in this room that is a believer, that is a Christian, is a little Pez dispenser of God's grace. And there's different flavors. Yay. You want more grace in your life? You've got to be a part of a church. The local church is God's plan for your life. It absolutely is. There are great parachurch ministries and nonprofits out there. They're great things, but they are not eternal things. The church is the eternal bride of Christ. And the church is where God dispenses his grace through people. And this grace, he says, it's varied. It's a watered-down term. It's kaleidoscopic. It's multifaceted. It's variegated. All different kinds of flavors of grace are dispensed in the church. Earlier in chapter 1, Peter says that the sufferings and the trials that we encounter are varied. It's the same exact word, polykase. And the church 
are the dispensers of kaleidoscopic stained glass windows of different flavors of grace, and it's in the church. Now, I know, I know that the church also happens to be full of others, Ugh, and they're the worst people. God. But those people have been given by grace a gift, transformed by God's Spirit to bless and bolster somebody else. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, this is always convicting because you may not know this about me, but I have uh, um, a talking problem, and I say a lot of words uh, all the time. If you hear me say it, that means that in about 20 seconds, I'm going to think it, right? It's always in the reverse order. I just talk. I, I can't help myself. And so, I don't know if you're like me at all. I get into seasons where I'm like, oh, the shame and the guilt heaped on the, why did I say that? 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 We are to be intentional when we speak. Now, this isn't the context of preaching and teaching, but it seeps into our everyday relational lives as well. When we speak as if we were speaking the words of God to somebody else, because maybe we are. Maybe we want to be really careful not to dispense some little self-help truism that we found in a fortune cookie but instead, we want to rightly communicate and convey God's word to people that are suffering. And maybe the sun's not going to come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar. Maybe it's still going to hurt tomorrow because that's what God's word says that we should expect suffering. We want to speak as if God is speaking to us and then through us as we speak to other people. Whoever speaks as if they're speaking oracles of God, whoever serves, there's that word again, diakonos, through the dust, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. This is how we are hospitable without grumbling about it because we recognize when we serve one another, it is God that is amplifying and giving me energy to do this. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter just loses it. He just gets busted praising. There he is writing a letter of encouragement, and he just goes, but dude, Jesus, he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. To him belong dominion and glory forever and ever. And his little, I just got busted praising, gets recorded for all generations in holy and inspired scripture. So what does this look like? As we hear Peter talk about, hey, church, here's who you are to be. How does that impact our lives? Because you may hear this and think, well, that's, that's really great and all, but, man, I have a health issue or I'm in relational crisis or we're in financial distress or we've got all these things that are going on. I live in fear and anxieties. What does this have to do with me? Well, I think it has a lot to do with you and a lot to do with me and a lot to do with us because God never offers a get-out-of-trial-free card. Instead, he transforms us to be like the person of his son, Jesus, who would encounter every one of those circumstances and scenarios, that we would walk through it with wisdom. That's what we're after. So let me just give you three very quick implications, I think, of this passage of how it helps us to be a people who live generously. The first is this. The first is be generous in faith. Be generous in faith. What is faith? Faith is living like it's true, like it's really true. We actually live our lives as if it's true. You know that I believe this platform can hold me and my girth because I get up on it and I walk back and forth on it. I'm living like it's true. When we live our lives as if God did what he said he would do and Jesus is who he said he was, we live in faith. We go to God in prayer. 
Just the simple exercise and the discipline of prayer communicates and conveys that we believe that God is. So that's how I start my prayer life. God, it's your name. It's who you are. You are. Despite all the other messaging of the world around me, you are. And because of that, I can be generous because of what I believe. That there are two fixed points on the timeline. The finished work of Christ on the cross and his coming in glory. So I can be the kind of person who is characterized by giving my life away because of what I believe. So be generous in faith. Secondly, be generous in hope. Why do I say hope? Well, the end of all things is at hand, and he is coming again soon. Hope is a confident expectation of something good in the future. So what that means is, I have hope that he is coming again in glory. I believe that he has come at first advent and accomplished what he set out to do on the cross. Therefore, I confess and am confident that God has given me every good and perfect thing I need. He withholds no good thing from those he loves. If I have it, it's because he has purposed me to have it and he knows that I need it. Or just that I want it. If I don't have it, it's because he's a good father who has said, you don't need that. You'll make a colossal train wreck of that. And he's always right. Therefore, because I have hope, I don't have to ever hoard my own resources, my time, my treasure, my talent, and keep it to myself just in case God doesn't come through in a pinch. No, Christians are people who have nailed the statement, yeah, but really, they've nailed it to the cross of Christ. We don't live in a mindset that says, yeah, but you know what, just in case God doesn't come through, I better have a little something tucked away just in case. We are free to be extravagant and profligate in the sharing of the resources that God has given us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, all these great things, but the ones that remain are faith and hope and, of course, love. So be generous in faith, be generous in hope, and be generous in love. Love covers a multitude of sin. Deliberately choose to alter our minds to think my life for you. My life for you. Not your lives or your life for me. My life for you. It frees us to live extravagantly and selflessly. Where as husbands, we begin to not view our wives as accessories or servants. <laughs> but we view our wives as the brides that God has given us to wash with the word and to hold them up before the risen Lord Jesus one day because, gentlemen, you will give an account for how you minister to your wife. Good luck with all that. Wives, when we look at our husbands, not as the knuckle-dragging guys that they are, but as the noble men that represent the strength and the, and the provision of God in our lives, how can we live as my life for you? How can we look at our children and say, my life for you? Not just you better not embarrass me in public because we're a good and decent family, remember? My life for you. At the people at, and the other brown chairs, how do we live our lives as my life for you? Oh, my goodness, that dude's in my seat again. Doesn't he know? No, he doesn't, and he doesn't care, and it's not your seat. How do we begin to look at our community as my life for you? Because, see, I think that's what the world is desperate for, is to see authentic love. Now, listen. I don't know what kind of week you have had, but if it's anything like mine, you have heard all sorts of voices saying, yeah, that's real nice. First Peter 4, 7 to 11, that's great, but that ain't you, chief. And that's right. And I have heard all sorts of my own voices, accusations, 
simmering and stewing in shame, just like, oh, I can't believe I'm the kind of guy who, but I am. But I read something this week from Martin Luther as we approach the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And Luther wrote this wonderful article 500 years ago, and he said, listen, there is one word that we must all know to stay the attacks of the devil. Just one word will shut him down. And I stopped reading and I thought, I got it. It's Jesus. Because I'm, you know, I work at a church and stuff, and Jesus is always the answer. It wasn't. Luther goes on and he says, the one thing, the one word that we must all be equipped with when all of the accusations and all of the shame and the and the grief stack up on us and our minds come off of the cross and off of the throne and onto ourselves. The one word we have to be equipped with is liar. 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 Revelation 12.10 says, Our accuser stands before God day and night hurling accusations, but we get to say, I am found in Christ. What you say about me is a lie. It is no longer true. Which frees us up to be the kind of people who live generously. I know you're not the most generous person and the most community-growing person, the leader-building person. I know, and neither am I. But this is where we get to pause by grace and look to the cross, to the one who perfectly fulfilled all three of those issues, who lived his life completely and utterly generously, opening himself up. You want to see somebody hospitable? The flawless, sinless one gave his life for a strange one like me. A natural-born enemy he dies for and gives me his life and his righteousness. It is our love that compels us to act accordingly. So if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus and you're still trying to slog it out and solve the problems of the world in your own strength, man, God bless you. Good luck with that. But I believe that God's word is inspired and inerrant and it says that you will never, ever find peace because you have not yet received grace. Now I invite you to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the son of the living God who lived a perfect life, paying the wages of sin, fulfilling the demands of the law, and he offers that finished scorecard to us. In exchange, we bring our sin, our admission that there is nothing in us that is Christ-like apart from the finished work of Christ. For the rest of us, I want to remind us that our thinking, our attitudes matter. To take this morning as an opportunity to go, you know what? It's a new school year. It's a new fall season coming up. By God's grace, I am asking that you would fill my mind with that which is noble and pure and holy and righteous and true, that I would be directed to pray, that I would have head on a swivel for others. And then there are those of you that are doing it, and nobody knows. You're living generously. You're serving. You're giving your life away, and you're beginning to become discouraged. Do not grow weary of doing good. I don't know what it is, but the Lord will call all of us to account. Not to say that you did a bunch of good stuff here and there, but that you kept your eyes turned and tuned to the Son, Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. May we be a church, may we be a campus, may we be a people who grow communities, who build leaders and live generously. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. I pray, God, that you will do all of that and more, more and more and more. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray that right now, in this moment, 
against all logic or intellect, they will believe. Not that they want or like or understand or even agree, but they will believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the light, the life, and that no one comes to you except through him. Father, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that we as a church will be equipped to love them, lead them, guide them, guard them into a growing relationship with your son Jesus until the day of Christ Jesus when your son returns. For the rest of us, Father, would you give us by grace, by your spirit, by your word, among your people, right thinking, attentive attitudes, to use our gifts, these skills and talents transformed by your spirit to bless others. And Holy Spirit, would you be an encouragement to those who are growing weary and discouraged? Father, we pray that you will do exactly as I have prayed or even better because you are good and we can trust you. We pray all these things the only way we can. In the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, thanks again so much for being with us this morning. If you have not ever gone to Discover Bethel, I want to formally and cordially invite you and really encourage you to be a part of that. You can sign up for that out in the foyer. For now, let me ask you to stand. We'll have a word of benediction, and then we will be dismissed. If we haven't had a chance to meet you, we absolutely want to do that, especially if you're visiting this morning. Now, may the God who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work, and may you see it. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.